Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Centric Health of Bakersfield. Welcome to Bakersfield Observe with Richard Bean, a podcast for and about Bakersfield and Kern County. Richard's guests are newsmakers, influencers, and personalities who address topics of interest to you and your neighbors and your community. The discussion is fast, informative, and always civil. Now, here's your host, Richard Bean. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to episode four of the Bakersfield Observe podcast with Richard Bean. I'm your host, Richard Bean. It is a Thursday, June 17th, the year 2021. We're broadcasting here from the American General Media Complex over here off Eastern Drive here. Uh, this is uh, the fourth episode in our podcast series with local newsmakers. It will be available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, where kernradio.com, really wherever you happen to access your podcast. All right, we are here with Mr. J.R. Flores, has joined me in the booth here today, Mr. Flores, as we're waiting on the heat to rejoin us. How are you, my friend? No, oh, God is good, Richard. Just blessed to spend the day with you, sir. It will, will it be as blessed to spend the day with me when it's 114, Mr. Flores? Every day is, uh, is a blessing with you, sir. <laughs> as it Every should day. be. As it should be. I miss you, Mr. Flores. What's going on in the world? We had the city council meeting last, last night. They were dealing with some of our favorite issues, the homeless issues. And of course, are we going to buy, are we going to buy that old train depot over there on baker street as our ward two councilman andre gonzalez seems to be intent on doing what what went on last night uh, yeah they uh, apparently they approved the budget for the uh, next fiscal year 2021-22 richard 683.2 million dollars <laughs> of our nice money you know jr i think we've got too much money to spend I'm serious. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, ever since Measure N passed, we are spending money like drunken sailors in, in this town. What are we spending it on, Mr. Florida? Uh, a little bit of everything, sir. A little bit of everything. I, I, I haven't had a chance to go over this completely, but uh, uh, the addition of 28 new sworn positions and 17 new civilian positions in the Bakersfield Police Department. Okay, I'm all for that. I'm yeah, I'm all, that. I, I guess so. Yeah, $6 million for affordable housing construction projects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, okay, I guess okay, we need, you right, know. I'll yeah. go for that. Yeah. Uh, more than $6 million for multiple funding sources for Recreation and Parks Department improvement projects and facilities. Okay. You're not okay with that? Well, that's all right. I mean, remember, the, this money was supposed to go to public safety and the homeless, at least the measure-in money, but go ahead. Yeah. All right. Well, $77.9 million in public safety and vital services measure appropriations, including nearly $2 million to implement elements of the new economic development strategic plan. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I have no idea what that just meant. <laughs> Well, we're going to spend $2 million on it. To implement a plan. Okay, very not, good. Not okay. to actually do anything, just to implement the okay. plan. There you I go. suppose. Consultant speak. Yeah. yeah, $3 million for community revitalization projects, continued funding for future pop-up trash drop-off events, and clean city teams as part of the Clean City Initiative. All right. 
Okay. 1.94 million allocated to a new Kern River Parkway plan, including dedicated code enforcement and recreation and parks department, rapid response teams, and uh, staff and outreach services. Bravo. Yeah. Let's see if that makes a difference. Squeaky wheel gets the oil. Well, let's see if it makes a difference. I'm telling you, I believe... Jared, did I tell you about this? I, I was watching something on TV the other day, and they had a young man who had moved to Nashville 15 years ago, and he was running a restaurant, and the focus of the story was about coming out of the pandemic and how excited he was to get the doors back open. But he talked about Nashville, Jr. with such love in his voice, and he would say things like, when you live here, you take such pride in what we do here. And I'm listening to this guy, JR. Have you ever heard anybody say that about living here? You know, <laughs> now, I'm not into Bakersfield bashing. I'm saying we lack, you know, this is a great community to live in. Don't, don't get me wrong. But we lack a civic pride because you know why? This place is a mess, JR. And. The city has to step forward as long as we're going to allow the homeless to live and do wherever they, whatever they do, then we need to step forward to clean this mess up. And that, you know, until then, until we get these streets cleaned, we're just not going to have that kind of pride. I'm sorry. You know? Yeah. So we'll start there. We got to start somewhere. All right. All right. Very good. Anything else? Uh, yeah. They uh, voted 6-0. With uh, who who was absent? There was somebody absent. Uh, Vice President or Vice Mayor Weir, I believe, was okay. was absent from last night's meeting. Uh, which is funny. Why would you uh, vote on a budget with one of your councilmen missing? But well, you should have been there. Uh, no. Just my opinion, Richard. Yeah, but anyways, right. uh, voted six zero to approve a twelve month lease agreement with Union Pacific Railroad for its Sumner Station, as well as security improvements, maintenance costs. And a budget transfer. Okay. Well, you know, I know I'm I'm going against the grain here. Everybody loves uh, historic preservation. Everybody loves a, a train depot. And nobody loves a train depots more than me, Jr. You know that. That's right, yes. Yeah, uh, no. But this thing's a dog. Can't wait. It's a dog. It's in the wrong spot. It's in Baker Street. Folks, I don't care how long you live. Baker Street is not going to be, they're not going to revive it. It is what it is, you know. Uh, I, I think this is this is money going into a black hole. It should be spent on something else. I've had my say on that. Obviously, the council voted unanimously to approve that, right? Uh, yeah. Do you want to know how much they're, they're spending? Yeah, sure. They're spent- how much? How well, much? Well, the, it doesn't say how much the 12-month. Because remember, Richard, we're not purchasing the building. We're leasing it. We're leasing it, it because right. we, can't, we can't purchase the land because the land is owned by Union Pacific. Okay. So they can't. They can't sell that land they have it's to like living in a trailer park yeah yeah it's something okay you don't you, well you never own the land you, you might own the trailer you own the trailer but not the but not the land the, yeah all right, all right. so so what's the money attached well the, 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 they don't say what the cost of the 12-month term is but they do have the cost for the items that they'll have to to, <laughs> to do to actually devils take, in the details to get to take care of the place okay so uh security agreement with teltec how much This includes the installation of an alarm and camera system and monthly monitoring services. $78,000. Okay. All right. All right. Now there's an alarm call agreement 
with trans west security because if you have an alarm you have to actually have somebody show somebody up somebody to show up when the alarm goes right. off the technicals as yes. we would say yes. that's another $7000 and that only assumes 52 callouts in a 12 month period so you only get one call a week in baker street, baker street. you're going to get one call an hour yes you know, okay. in the event of an alarm uh they're to respond and remain on site until the bpd responds okay right. which could take that could take years days uh, right at least right. All right. good what to secure the entry points another eight thousand dollars several windows and doors are not currently secured which will lead to unauthorized access to the structure. Uh, utilities, 8,400, electricity and internet are necessary to operate the proposed security system. It just goes on and on. Ongoing window, door, and fence repairs, twenty to $30,000. Oh. And you know, we're, we're, we're going to put a ton of money into this thing. We're going to lease this thing for a couple of years. And finally, another council is going to come in and say, we got to cut the cord. So we're going to put all this money into new windows and security and all that. We're not going to get a penny out of it. Nothing out of that. Another $1,000 to change signs to tell people to stay out of the building. I'll make them that cheaper than that, JR. So a 12-month total estimate is somewhere between one hundred and seventeen dollars and $127,000. Okay. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, I had my... That's just to secure the building and get it change the doors and the locks Can you imagine once they get in do you get a couple architects over there and they're going to say what you have to do to an old building like that to bring it up to code earthquake paint i mean and much less you know and making it a place where somebody'd like to come in there and do business on baker street good luck with that good luck with that all right, very good. Let's move on here. All right, this is a podcast show here, Mr. Flores. We're going to be talking to somebody really interesting, uh, Joel Castix. Now, Joel is an advocate for victims of sexual abuse. She was at the press conference that the attorneys held about a week ago when they announced that two men have come forward to accuse uh, Monsignor, or former Monsignor, Craig Harrison of sexual abuse and she was there not as a lawyer but as an advocate as a matter of fact she is a victim of childhood sexual abuse herself that happened in the Diocese of Orange in Orange County at a high school when a teacher molested her so she knows what she's talking about one of the reasons I I wanted to have her on JR is one of the fascinating aspects of the Father Craig case for me has been the reaction of the community. I've never really seen anything like it, but as I've come to learn, it's probably more common than it is not. And the reaction goes like this, generally, and it is predict- predictable, and I think as we'll learn from Joel, it's seen all too often. People, When people follow particularly a popular person, be it a priest, be it a a football coach, be it a teacher, be it a neighbor, be it a brother who is accused of these things, the first reaction is to say, it cannot happen. I know this man. I And that's what we've heard in the Father Craig case. I can't tell you how many times people have told me the good he has done. And I do not, for one, deny that Father Craig has done good in this community. And by the way, I'll say it again, I don't know I have no idea 
the guilt or innocence of any of this stuff. All I know is my, my position has been, let's hear from the accusers. You know, that doesn't mean I'm against Father Craig. It means I want to hear what these people have to say. And I think as a society, we owe it to them. And yet there are many followers of Father Craig in town who don't want to hear anything. They think the mere airing of this podcast is somehow an attack on them. When for me, this is a pursuit of journalism and a pursuit of the truth, you know, but it has, it is remarkable how many people, particularly uh, Catholics uh, who uh, have been to, uh, you know, belong to St. Francis, have rallied around Father Craig? We've seen this and have just absolutely refused to entertain any thought other than he's being set up, that this is, this is a ploy by the accusers to get money from the church. Actually, we heard that from Kyle Humphrey one of Father Craig's defense attorneys where he likened to the accusers as kind of pigs lining up at the trough to enrich them, enrich themselves. We'll be talking to Joel about this. What is it about us? What is it about a people, all of us, where when we have so much invested in a person that when that person's integrity is questioned, then we refuse to believe it and the follow-up question, of course, is what effect does that have on people outside who may or may not have been uh, victimized, their reluctance to come forward when they, are, when they look at a society, their own community, where people are putting signs in their yard saying, we, you know, we support Father Craig, uh, some of the most prominent people in town, including newscasters, including people who should be uh, on bias about this, have taken sides in this thing. Uh, uh, how, does, how does that change the case here? And as it turns out, as I said, this is much more common than it is uncommon when you have popular people in any community, be they a preacher, a coach, or a priest, or a coach, or whatever, who have been accused of things like this. So we'll get into it with Joel Castic. All of these podcasts are available on Spotify or Google Podcasts or Apple. Apple, uh, And they're also available on kernradio.com. You'll see, you'll see a little strip there. You can click on that. And all the episodes are, are, are going to be listed. So, Jer, let's get to our guest now. We're going to be talking to Joelle Castic. She is a renowned expert, actually an advocate in many, many child abuse cases across this country. She is an expert in the role of parents, society, how we view these cases, and how we react to these cases, which there are some common denominators across the country. And however, I'd like to welcome Joelle Castix to the program. Joelle, thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. It's terrific. Thank you so much. Joelle, could you take a minute to introduce yourself to the audience to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you grew up, and how you got involved in this particular issue? Sure, I'd love to. Um, I am a California native, born and raised in Orange County, still live down here. And um, I was on track to not enter this this field, um, but uh, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse in the Diocese of Orange. And so 
how that affected me and my life has really given me a, a direction as far as my career goes. So um, as a young teenager at Modern Day High School in Santa Ana, I was super vulnerable, uh, had an alcoholic mother. My, my dad was in denial and had had a, a series of psychiatric and emotional issues. But at the same time, I was also on track to become an opera singer. Hmm. And I was uh, doing well academically, and I was in the elite touring choir. And my junior year, a new teacher started at the school, and um, he was charming, charismatic. The whole community loved him. Mm. And at the same time, he was grooming young girls for abuse. And so over a two-year period, he groomed and sexually molested me and eventually uh, got me pregnant and gave me a sexually transmitted disease. Wow. And um, the, the worst part about all of this was that the school knew and co- chose to cover it up. I reported it as the abuse was going on. And a school official told me, Gee, Joelle, is it this is this is love? Isn't it great to be in love? So you better not say anything. Whoa. Yeah, and so that kept me quiet for years. Did, excuse me. When you said you reported this, you reported this to the school. Did you report this to anybody beyond the school? Any uh, the law enforcement? I did not report to law enforcement, but people knew. My my peers knew. Um, and the, their reaction is, is very telling here because, you know, kids don't know this is in the eighties. And I mean, when you're being groomed for abuse, you're being tricked into thinking that the sexual abuse is either okay, or it's your fault, Hmm. or it's the natural progression of a relationship between a kid and an adult. And so I was scared and confused and so going to the cops wasn't something that I would think about doing. But there were adults who knew and who should have called the cops. Hmm. How was And and that's that's the issue. But my peers who were also groomed, um, who they were groomed in two ways. One, some of them were victims, and others were, you know, just enraptured by this charismatic man, chose to blame me. And chose to say, oh, you know, Joelle either A, just wanted a teacher boyfriend, or B, she's the one who turned him into a molester, and he went on to molest other girls. Mm, boy. Yeah, it, it was horrible. And so I was ostracized within my community, and it, it made, and my parents were the same way, so... You know, my parents are old school. My dad was Catholic. My mom was not, but very much into the whole victim-blaming thing. And so when I went to them because, you know, I, I wanted I, things were I wanted things to stop, even they said, well, Joelle, you know, you wouldn't have gotten into this mess if you just kept your legs shut. That was what your mom told you? Yeah. Ooh. And so it's it's brutal. And, you know, my dad called, you know, thought I was cheap for years, and it wasn't until, you know, 10, 15 years later that he finally had that reckoning. So for survivors, and, and my story is not unique. So, you know, for survivors like me, it's devastating. The whole community turned against me. And when I came 
forward as a so so you know time I muddle my way through college of course I don't end up pursuing music I have a couple you know I have a bad marriage I you know I'm making it through my 20s but I realize it's like you know I I hit this tipping point and I realize I have a choice here I can either live or if I stay the way I'm on the track I'm at I'm gonna die and I decided I was gonna live and through all that in uh, 2001 a young man named Ryan D. Maria came forward or actually pre-2001 this was like 97 or so came forward and said that the principal of Santa Margarita Catholic High School who was the principal of my high school um, when I was at modern day had sexually abused him Mm. and the community when Ryan first came forward had a we love Monsignor Harris rally with with planes flying over with banners on them and and the cheerleaders came out because they love Father Harris. And they called this guy Father Hollywood. And he's, he's very infamous. And so, you know, there were other survivors who were like, I'm not going to say a word. And so when Ryan's case settled in 2001, um, it ended up settling for, I think, $5.1 million. And really all Ryan wanted when he came forward the first at first was money for counseling because he was mm-hmm. suicidal. That's all he wanted. And the diocese told him to go pound sand. And so, you know, four or five years later, it ends up with $5.1 million. And we find out that they had sent Harris to treatment centers, all this stuff. So um, in 2001, this happens, and I'm, I'm angry. So by this time, I'm a vice president of a PR firm in, in Costa Mesa. And, and I... Uh, I reach out to the diocese and I'm like, Hey, you know, this shouldn't be happening. And I, I want to be part of the solution. I want to help. And, you know, let's, let's figure this out. And so the, the uh, chancellor for the diocese calls me in. Well, she, I get a, I'm asked to meet with the HR director of the diocese. So I have lunch with her and, and she says, well, Joelle, you know, I'm really Sorry if you feel like you're a victim. I went through all the files and we found nothing in your case. (sighs) Well, come to find out, she was actually the general counsel for the diocese. She was a lawyer. Mm. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) this is a crazy story. So I I served on the diocesan lay review board for a while, and it ended up that it was just a, a cover and a front. Um, they were, they put us in there to review cases of child sexual abuse. We really didn't review anything. And I finally stepped down and said, this is enough. And I went to, um, this is 2003 and they, we had opened the first civil window for survivors of child sexual abuse. And I filed a lawsuit and through the course of the litigation, I got all the files in my case which showed that the school knew about it and covered it up, that the diocese knew about it and covered it up, that um, the guy who had sexually molested me actually had a sign, there was a signed confession in my files. And, you know, it's all this stuff that they did to 
cover up my case, they did in the, of course, the Michael Harris case, the guy who's the uh, the principal with Ryan that they settled in 2001. Now there's something like 30 survivors who've come forward against mm-hmm. him. Um, there are at least two from my perpetrator. And so since then, since my case settled in 2005, sorry, of course, that's a long story, but um, I've I turned my righteous anger at that time into advocacy. So I've become the person who, you know, I took all my knowledge and I speak out for survivors who don't have a voice. And I do that through my blog. I do that through my writing. I do that through events like this. And I've become the person that people come to in crisis and when they need help. So when allegations come forward, Usually the survivor has called someone like me because I was many years with SNAP, the Survivors Network, and Mm -hmm. now I do a lot of my own stuff. But so people call me when they need help. And that's how I ended up, you know, I've been to Guam and helped survivors there. I've done this in Alaska and Delaware and Hawaii, all over California, because survivors and communities have nowhere to turn when they want to come forward and say, this man who everybody loves is hurting kids. And through my years of experience, I've been able to take my knowledge and and help people to find that voice and find methods to seek justice, whether that be through the civil courts or through media attention or through uh, the criminal courts. And to make sure that what happened to me and what happened to other kids doesn't continue and that, that we can get the true transparency and safety that we need in our communities. Mm-hmm. You appeared with the attorneys from Jeff Anderson and uh, advocates uh, who are representing two men who are suing the former uh, Monsignor here, Craig Harrison. You appeared at that press conference uh, to speak for the uh, uh, for, for, for the uh, accusers. How did you get involved in the Harrison case? Um, I am deeply involved in many of the cases throughout California because of my deep knowledge of how everything has, has worked here for a number of years. And um, when the allegations first, when I had heard rumblings and rumors about Harrison for years, he was one of those priests who was always kind of on my radar screen. Mm-hmm. And um, then when the allegations came forward, uh, I have I've received numerous phone calls from people uh, asking for help and guidance, um, everything from parishioners, like, I don't know what to do or say. I've received two calls from parishioners, and um, I've had a couple of people who have that said that that they were abused by Harrison call me. And so I've done work with Anderson in the past. When I found out he was doing this press conference, I said, I would like to speak out for these survivors because this is an extraordinarily scary situation. And there needs to be someone who speaks out for the survivors who are too scared to come forward. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking to Joe Alcastics, who's an advocate for survivors of sexual abuse in, in many instances, but in this case, uh, referring to clergy uh, abuse. Joelle, let's go back to your your own personal uh, case because I find it so interesting that you literally walk the walk. Talk to me about your life between the time that you reported this to the school 
they rebuffed you. And then years later, when you came forward, I said, I think you said 2003 and you settled in 2005. I mean, I, you hear this from a lot of accusers when they say, nobody's going to believe me. Uh, they're going to ask why I waited so long to come forward. In the Craig Harrison case, one of his attorneys has referred to potential accusers as people like pigs lining up at the trough to line themselves with money. Uh, you have in your case, and as in the Harrison case here, there was a prayer service after the story broke. They sound very similar. What is the mindset of the victim in your case, the accuser, when all of this is going on, when the public support for the priest in this case is so loud, what's going through your mind? Well, you know, when I was struggling through all of this, the first thing you think is, am I crazy? You know, mm-hmm. did because you find yourself questioning everything you believe about how a kid should be treated and what happened to you. So... I, when I, so many, for so many years, people told me it was my fault and that I wanted it. I thought, well, gosh, you know, did I, what did I do to ask for this? What did I do? I must have done something. And then, then you wonder, well, you know, did, did I create this monster? You know, and as the, the kid told me and then when the community rallies around this guy, you think, well, well gosh, you know, it, 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 you, you really begin to question and devalue and minimize your experience. And, and survivors, when they're groomed, um, we find like 95% of survivors of child sexual abuse are not taken by force, but are very carefully groomed. Mm-hmm. So it's through flattery and gifts and isolation and, and all those things to make a kid feel really special. And so it's like, well, gosh, you know, he didn't hold me down. He didn't put a gun to my head. Uh, so you just, so the, all the pain and destruction turns inward. And so that's why you get a lot of suicides, um, especially when a, uh, a, like a member of the clergy is, is accused in the community rallies around them in support. Many of the survivors will commit suicide because mm. they're like, you know, my life just isn't valuable. Whatever happened to me was just not worth it. Mm. And so for, for me, you go through all, you know, I went through a lot of self doubt, a lot of shame, a lot of um, self destruction. And if that's not unique at all, it's, it's very common because it's very easy to silence the survivor because they've already been silenced all the way through. And when someone is finally brave enough to come forward, it's very easy to continue to devalue and undermine their experience. And, you know, when the attorneys for Harrison say that, you know, that pig's lining up at the trough, it's just, that just irks me and, and disgusts me because it's like, I didn't want to do this. Nobody wants to sue their church. Nobody, I didn't want to have this job. I didn't, I don't want to become this person. I wanted to be a singer or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the civil justice system is the only route I had 
to do anything to expose this guy and to to take back my name and my voice and my story. And he was the guy who sexually abused me was still teaching. He was working at a college in Adrian, Michigan, and this was the only route I had to do anything to protect myself because, you know, if I had just come forward and stood on a mountaintop and said, Thomas Hodgman sexually abused me as a kid, he could have turned around and sued me, Mm -hmm. and I would have had no recourse. But the civil courts and the civil justice system gives these survivors an avenue to keep kids safe, to warn communities. And it's been the only way, especially in California and many other states, that we have had to hold institutions like the Catholic Church accountable for child sexual abuse. Because, I mean, the the media can try, but there's no, there's no real recourse. Um, and it's the, it's the only method that we have had so far that's had any kind of effective nature. And it's, it's tremendously healing for survivors because for these Harrison victims, when they get the chance to see Harrison's personnel file, when they get the chance to learn more about his history, when Harrison is deposed and when his bishops are deposed, we will get to the truth. And that's all survivors want. That's all I wanted was the truth, period. What what do you say? The two things I I I hear repeatedly when survivors or the accusers or the victims are are criticized by the other side is is if if it's a man, if it's a boy, they'll say, "Well, why did he let that happen? He's a young man. He's a teenager." The, the, the implication is that somehow that he, you know, that he welcomed it or allowed it to happen. And the second thing, of course, is they're all in it for the money, and it, it's a it's a common refrain you hear. What do you say to people who tell you that? Who who say, "Look, I know Craig Harrison. Uh, Craig Harrison was there when my mother died or my aunt died." Craig Harrison was a prince. Craig Harrison helped my family through this horrible time. I know Craig Harrison. He could never do this. These guys are coming forward. It's all about money. What do you say to them? Well, you know, when someone comes to you with that attitude, a lot of times you really just, you can't convince them. All you can say is, you know, let, you know just tell them about, you know, your own experience. Mm-hmm. But when we look at child predators, and it doesn't have to be a member of the clergy. It can be, you know, anybody. They, the, if he, all you had was, if you were the crazy guy in the trench coat, you wouldn't get any kids. You'd have to grab them in your white panel van. And we know the another 95% of kids are abused by somebody else. It's someone who's charismatic. It's someone who attracts children to them who can find the vulnerable targets. Because when if you want to be a successful child predator, you need a steady stream of victims. You need credibility and um, power within your community. And you need to be able to convince people that you are the, the sheep when you really are the wolf. And so these people will be outgoing and affable, they will be the nicest people. They might be the best uh, homilist at, at math. 
They might be the greatest basketball coach you've ever had. They might be, you know, a, a trusted friend or family member who you invited into your home because you loved them. And that's the thing. These predators will trick the survivors into thinking that the abuse in many times is love. So the victims, especially in cases of incest and clergy sexual abuse, will love the predator hmm. and the perpetrator because this person has done wonderful things and 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 loved this child in other ways before the abuse started. And so it forms this attachment that keeps the survivor quiet. And you'll find that, that you know, I've talked to dozens of survivors who have said, yeah, you know, my biggest shame was that the man who sexually abused me also officiated my wedding. Mm. Wow. Because yeah, because he the, the guy was so entrenched in the family and so loved, and because seriously, if you are a an unlikable person, you're not going to get many kids to to come to you. You have to be that cool guy. Yeah, you have to be that that you know loving, caring person that kids want because you have to attract them. You have to. Um, be able to find the easy targets as quickly as possible. And you do that by being the most attractive, charming lure possible. Oh boy. Uh, can you talk to me? I, I listened to one of your Ted talks and you dealt a lot with grooming. And I thought I, I, I found it fascinating because you're talking about that when predators look for victims, they often look, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but they, they will often look for people who are broken or who are bruised or people maybe who uh, are having a, t- a teenager, having a tough time in their life or perhaps from a broken family. Can you talk about how grooming is done and what it looks like? Well, what grooming does is it helps predators find the easy targets because they don't they don't want the hard targets. They don't it's the quest the conquest for them is not getting the that one kid they always wanted it's getting as many kids as humanly possible so they have to cull the 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 kids who are strong from the kids who are weak and you do that through predatory grooming and it's it's really how a child sex predator tricks a kid into thinking the child sex abuse is okay and tricks an entire community into thinking that these behaviors are normal. And so the, the goal in this is to blur boundaries. And you, you start slowly um, by gifts and flattery. So when you, you know, you flatter a bunch of kids and certain ones will respond. Like I, that's where I was. I was so vulnerable. I'd spent time in a psychiatric facility because I'd been suicidal. And when someone says, wow, Joel, you're so mature, you're such a fabulous singer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's just mm. everything I wanted to hear. Nobody understands you like I do. Oh, nobody understands me at all. And so you use things like that. You, um, so you flatter the child. Many times in the cases of some cases, in cases of poverty, they'll be given gifts, uh, girls, jewelry, boys, sports memorabilia. You'll find nowadays, because, you know, I was, I'm old school, but this was, you know, nowadays you find prepaid credit cards and um, prepaid cell phones and gifts of technology to provide greater access. Mm. When I worked with kids 
um, in the uh, native um, villages of western Alaska. These kids were starving to death, so the priest would give them food. And he, was, mm. he lured them with food. And that when, when you're that vulnerable, it's pretty easy to do. But there will always be some of those kids who are like, I don't care, I don't like that guy, and they'll go away. But that's such a small portion. Um, and it's it's very easy to find a vulnerable child. And so by the time, so you have the gifts and the flattery, and then the sex talk starts. Uh, it'll go into, you know, many times the predator will give pornography or um, mm. normalize that sex talk and behavior. Then it becomes long hugs, long kisses, and this takes a period of time. So that by the time the sexual abuse has started and we get into the kissing and the fondling, the kid has been completely isolated from their friends and family. They, because the sex talk and everything else has been normalized, they really don't think it's weird. So if the if the predator makes that first move, that first touch or whatever, and the kid flinches, they just take time before they continue the other touches. If the kid gets up and walks away, they just move to the next kid. Wow. So it's it's a slow process, and it's it's horribly damaging to the survivor because afterward, they're like, well, maybe I did want it. Did I want it? I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't fight. I didn't say no, but I certainly didn't want it. And so, and then when if the whole community is groomed, they're like, oh well, of course it's totally normal for kids to sit on his lap. It's totally normal for him to kiss kids on the lips. It's totally normal to talk about sex and for him to have the sex talk with kids. It's totally normal for him to take little Johnny on a two-day camping trip all by himself because everyone's been groomed into thinking that this behavior is normalized. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about how communities react. Uh, We have a case here, and it sounds very similar to your case, where... Craig Harrison was an enormously, enormously popular figure in this community, far beyond his church. Uh, he was, uh, they named a sandwich after him here in town at a popular sandwich uh, place. He, he was on TV. He was on radio. Uh, it, it enormously, uh, po- he used to call him the rock star priest here, right? Now, when... When people come forward and communities react, here there was a prayer vigil, just as you mentioned. Here people started putting up signs in their yards and around their businesses that said, we support uh, Father Craig or we support, you know, uh, Craig Harrison. Uh, some, of the, some of the richest people in town have rallied around him and are helping fund his, his defense. He's got some of the greatest legal minds, criminal and civil who have who are working? He's got six lawyers working for him on this team, and when the uh, accusers see that, you know, and they see the 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 community rallying around this already popular person, which, as you said, they may love themselves. Correct? How? Oh yeah, they they. I mean, Craig Harrison. I've never met him. He could be the nicest guy you've ever met. But that doesn't erase everything else. But he's probably extraordinarily charismatic and nice and funny. The guy you want to be around. Mm-hmm. How, 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 how does that play with the accuser? 
I mean, I'm assuming they're more reluctant to come forward. They would, they may be, they may be at odds with uh, many people they grew up with or neighbors or the parents of their best friends. Oh yeah. Or their job. Right. Or their family. Um, it, it is, this is, it happened in the, in the Michael Harris case, for example, exact same thing. The uh, richest people in Orange County supported him. Uh, there were rallies in support of him, all kinds of stuff. So it scares and intimidates survivors because it keeps that imbalance of power. Uh, the survivor comes forward and says, well, I don't have lawyers. I don't have a team of six lawyers. I don't have any of this stuff. Who's going to believe me? It's not worth it to come forward. And so it scares them. It intimidates them. It, um, it impedes their ability to, to function. I mean, it is extraordinarily overwhelming when someone who caused caused such damage to your life is getting such support in the community. It's just, it, it, it kills you. It kills you inside. And so that's why they're staying silent and they're rightfully scared because I mean, if I'll honestly say if the man who sexually abused me was actively suing people and who had allegations against him and I didn't have the recourse of the civil lawsuit, mm-hmm. I would have kept my mouth shut because, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't have endless resources to pay for a, a defense. All I have is my truth. And as a kid who was sexually abused in no position of power and no access to the files about all this, I mean, what standing do I have? It's really the civil courts that finally give these survivors standing. You mentioned that, and Father Craig and his attorneys have indeed sued some of his critics. Critics, They have threatened to sue me, uh, inclusive of that, but they did file suit against the Roman Catholic faithful and then against a former monk named Ryan Dixon who served with uh, Father Craig when he was at St. Francis here. Is that common that the attorneys for the accused priest in this case would go on the offensive in in a way to shut people up or at least to to say look you don't shut up I, i'm going to cut you know uh this is going to cost you a lot of money just to defend it is that common well when it comes to the catholic cases it's usually not as common for the perpetrator to sue the survivors because normally they don't have access to the funds to put together the cases mm-hmm. um but the other intimidation tactics are very, very common um, because if you have the support of people, if you have the support of communities, if you have friends in high places and you're able to have people who have rallies and intimidate victims into staying silent and withdraw the survivor's opportunities as well as the opportunities for that survivor's family, that we see that very commonly. There have been a couple of cases where people have been sued, um, but usually those have been shut down um, in the courts with anti-slap because it's, especially if the survivors have legal recourse in the civil courts. But it's, that's a very scary tactic to keep people quiet. And um, fortunately, because of the civil window in California, it, it won't work. Hmm. What is it about societies, or all of us, I guess, that we're so reluctant to believe 
bad news when somebody shares it about somebody we love or we admire? Does it reflect poorly on our own judgment, do you think, that we would have to believe that this person I've looked up to for so long is now flawed in in some way? Because, uh, Joel, we have... A, we have people here, prominent people, who have left the Catholic Church because they believe the church was unfair to Craig Harrison. Uh, to me, that is that that's unbelievable that people actually leave the church. Uh, what is it about all of us that we th- these horrible accusations? Let, let, let me give you an example. After this story broke, about six months into it, I was talking to a a friend of mine, he's a lawyer in town, a Big Father Craig supporter, and I said, David, I don't know where the truth is. I mean, I wasn't there, and I still don't, Joel, I still don't know what the truth is because I wasn't there, but I'm willing to listen to the accusers, and I think everybody should listen to the accusers. And he said, I just don't believe it. And at that time, there there was four accusers. And I said, well, David... How many, does it need to be 10? I mean, is there a number at which you would you you would say, well, maybe there's, you know, we ought to look into it? And he looked me in the eye, and this is a smart guy who's, who's uh, you know, a lawyer in town who goes, he would, I know this man, he would never do that. I don't care what the number is. Well, if by that standard, then... Uh, you're never going to have an ounce of doubt about this. What is it about our, our ourselves that we cannot let that that doubt in when it comes into somebody that we admire? Well, I mean, religion is the, a way that we provide meaning to a, a world of chaos, and it's how we raise. I mean, when you think about the, a Catholic, I mean, for for my dad, for example, he he looked at me and said, "Gosh, you know." He didn't say this guy sexually, you know, abused my daughter because, well, he raised me in the Catholic Church. He was baptized. He was married in the church. This was everything to him. This was the, the, his big support system. The, he went to Modern Day himself. So to look and say this guy did horrible things to my daughter would be to say, gosh, everything I believe in now is the the foundation is crumbling and people don't want to do that um it's it 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 kills me when you hear the i have this man in my home and he would never do that i can't believe how many of those people have later called me and said oh my god he abused my kids Mm -hmm. and those people are i mean they are devastated in the end because it, it it they're like doubly shattered um so it's I, I think we just want to believe in good so much, and when we give someone that credibility, when we love and trust someone so much, to acknowledge that they would do something so horrible would destroy the very foundation of everything who we are mm-hmm. as a human being, and that's that's tough. That is really really tough for people. So. Oh boy, you know, you we're we're talking specifically. We're doing a lot of times talking about accused priests here, but of course, as you mentioned earlier, this 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 idea of sexual abuse. I mean, it could be anybody. It could be a parent. It could be a neighbor. It could be a Boy Scout uh, 
uh, leader. It could be, uh, a, you know, a, a sports coach. Uh, it just seems to me, I mean, when you, when you look at everybody from Jeffrey Epstein to Harvey Weinstein to Bill Clinton, I mean, you know, it just goes on and on. It is sexual abuse is so pervasive across the world, is it not? Yeah, it, it really is. And it, it always has been. The problem for, you know, you know, numerous millennium was that either it was, you know, shunned or people just you weren't okay talking about it. And now that we're talking about it more and more, people are, are shocked. Oh my gosh, this happens everywhere. Well, yeah, it, it is very, very common. Um, and the number one way to prevent it is to talk about it and be open with your kids and to arm them. But people don't want to talk about the icky stuff. People you know, are, are, are shocked that, you know, I would educate my child. But it's like, you know, teaching your kid about child sexual abuse has nothing to do with sex. My kid learned about sex the same time all the other kids did. But when he was little, he learned important lessons like, you know, you don't when uh, you don't have to hug an adult if you don't want to. Nobody. Yeah, my I have a son. So, you know, nobody touches your genitalia and you don't touch anybody else's. Nobody shows you photos and it's, it's OK. And you always come to mom and it's safe. And and so he he was a hard target. But we didn't know that for so many years. So, you know, kids like me wandered around aimlessly thinking, oh, I guess it's okay that this happens hmm. because it was normalized in our media. It was normalized by Woody Allen. It was normalized by all these yeah. people. And nobody wants to believe that the person they love would do such horrible things. I mean, you, you don't. You, you simply don't. How, how is this going to play out? You've seen this happen before, but I, I'm, I'm interested in our case here, the Harrison case. We do now have, he's been hit with the two lawsuits. There'll be discovery. There'll be depositions. It seems to me we're going to be in a period where there's going to be a lot of, of, of information revealed about the accusations that heretofore has not been public. How do these things play out, and is there a time as as we get deep into these cases and more is learned when people start maybe changing their mind or being more open that that uh, this is something that we ought to hear? Well, I have found that usually it's when, when we'll use a Catholic church as an example here, when a diocese opens their files and we find out that they knew all along. Um, because if, you know, we, we know that two people have come forward, I believe there are more survivors who are talking about filing cases. Um, so what will happen is when the diocese turns over what they know, it will slowly leak out into the press and people will, will have a reckoning. Um, but many times these guys are, are always kind of protected and loved, but at least people are on alert because by coming forward and saying something, when Harrison moves into a new community and he's hanging out with kids, parents will be like, you know, maybe you should hang out with somebody else. Right. Right, right. Talk to me about the, there's been a lot of attention given that the Diocese of Fresno has not released a list of credibly accused priests, priests that in the history of the diocese have have been accused of things that have been 
found one way or the other by law enforcement agencies or the diocese itself as credible. The Diocese of Fresno has not released that. How important is that, and why is that important? It's super important. I mean, really, it's a low-hanging fruit. How easy would it be for them to put together a list of the guys they know who are dead, (laughs) who are publicly known as dead, and release that list and say, we scoured our files? I mean, it is so easy. It is such a minimal effort to show that they care about the safety of kids. And you look at what, you know, no, the, the diocese all need to just open their files so everyone can see. But you look at what neighboring dioceses, like in Sacramento, they'll, they post a lot of stuff on their website and talk about accusations and when someone was removed from the priesthood. And, you know, it's, it's not perfect, but at least it's a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Putting out a list at least shows that they're willing to make the easiest minimal step for transparency. Because if because you think about it, if they won't even tell us who the dead guys who abuse kids are, of course we all know anyway. Mm-hmm. Then if they won't tell us that, what else aren't they telling us? What's happening right now that we don't know about? Why is the why why is the Fresno diocese so uh, out of step? Given that other dioceses have complied and it released the list, um, I think it's because of the the past bishops you've had. Um, I, you know, uh, really all I can do is just give conjecture. I'm like, gosh, if they're not willing to release a list, whose name is on it? Right, you know? right. <laughs> I mean, God, and there must be some juicy names on that if they refuse to release it. So, I mean, maybe Harrison's on it. Who knows? Maybe they're scared of Harrison. Who knows? Um, so they, there could be a myriad of reasons there. It could just be poor management. It could be, you know, just a total lack of pastoralism, or it could be something really, really bad. And no matter what it is, it's wrong, and we should be on alert. We're almost out of time here, but uh, Joel, is, is is it your impression that once once we get a hold of the personnel files for, say, Craig Harrison or whatever from the diocese, are they are they complete, or have they been doctored or purged or is our is the paperwork generally complete in these things no uh it usually isn't there's usually just enough to to substantiate um the survivor's claims um seldom do we see a complete file with all of the this quote-unquote smoking gun document mm-hmm um, and sometimes they'll be redacted. Sometimes they're in Latin. Sometimes they're missing. Um, sometimes, you know, oh gosh, you know, there was this mysterious fire in the archives and everything fell into our shredder. It just happened. <laughs> um, in San Diego, a guy admitted to shredding um, uh, files. So it's it, if it's really bad, they they will. I mean, what's what is to stop them? For the most part, we've we've seen never have I worked on a case where they've said we have nothing on this, absolutely nothing. There's always something, but mm-hmm. it's usually not complete. Right, got it. All right, we've been talking to Joelle Casta. She is a advocate for child sexual abuse. She was with the 
uh, attorneys from Anderson and Associates when they held their press conference on the two lawsuits against Craig Harrison here in Bakersfield. You've shed a lot of light on this, and I want to thank you for coming on the Bakersfield Observe with Richard Bean podcast. This will be posted this afternoon. It'll be available on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Joelle, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was my pleasure. Okay. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Bakersfield Observe, the podcast with Richard Bean. This podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Centric Health of Bakersfield.